So, Jay, like you, I'm mostly an X guy, but I gotta say, these Fantastic Four villains are a delight. Oh, Miles, it is so true. Silver Age science heroes have the best rogues galleries. I know a lot of the ones who show up in Fantastic Four 416, Kang, Super Scroll, Blastar, but some of these guys are entirely new to me. Who is the Red Ghost? And why can his monkey turn into a gun? Well, Miles, once upon a time, there was a man named Ivan Kragoff who decided to replicate the circumstances that got the Fantastic Four their powers, but like, more so. So he decked out a ceramic ship. Ceramic? To make it more permeable to the cosmic rays. Look, it was the Silver Age. No one gave a hoot about whether it would actually work as long as it sounded cool. Anyway, Ivan headed off to the moon in his ceramic ship with a trio of trained apes. As one does. And, as planned, they all got superpowers from cosmic rays. And one of the apes got the power to turn into a gun. Well, shapeshifting in general, but yeah. Jay, the Silver Age was awesome. I know, right? Okay, so why is this man not the Fantastic Four signature villain? I mean, he's got a trio of super-powered apes. They must be unstoppable. They're, um, they're actually pretty stoppable. Aw, come on. No, no, seriously. One time. And, and I will note, this is an official continuity. Spider-Man took the whole team out with... Webs? A custom-made spider suit? Well-timed banter? Hostess fruit pies. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 353 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Onslaught. Yeah, it's sort of feeling like a broken clock right now. Meaning it's, uh, right twice a day? Uh, meaning it's just really kind of stuck in one place. Well, that's fair. So we have a few more Onslaught tie-ins this time. We have one Phase 2 issue, meaning it's sort of central to the whole thing, and two Impact 2 issues that are a little more tangential. Theoretically. Theoretically, yes. And uh, they really vary in both relevance and quality, as we have seen with pretty much everything across Onslaught. Yeah. Of the three issues we're looking at, I feel like one is really, really strong, and the other two are just kind of there. Yeah, yeah, I think I would agree with that. Obviously, we'll go into much greater depth. But that being said, a lot of content, so we should probably dive in. But first, we should probably talk about what happened previously on Slot. So Onslaught is a lifetime of Charles Xavier's frustration and repression combined with some evil stuff from Magneto's head. And he is manifested as a giant, all-powerful, psionic villain who has taken over the remains of Manhattan. One of Onslaught's henchmen is Dark Beast, the evil version of the X-Men's Beast who hails from the dystopian alternate timeline of the Age of Apocalypse. Before Onslaught was on the scene, Dark Beast imprisoned regular Beast and secretly took his place on the X-Men, which went... real badly. Now Dark Beast is serving Onslaught full-time alongside his assorted henchmen, Fatal, Random, and a brainwashed Havoc. 
Onslaught, for his part, has been collecting nigh-omnipotent mutants inside his personal astral plane, and or backpack, including Franklin Richards, the young son of half of the Fantastic Four. But Franklin wasn't the first person Onslaught trapped. That honor goes to the Juggernaut, Charles Xavier's unstoppable stepbrother who's empowered by the crimson gem of the demon Sidorak, and who is now stuck inside the gem in question. Welp, let's start with X-Factor number 126, The Beast Within. Written by Howard Mackey, with layouts by Herb Trimpey, pencils by Stefano Raphael, inks by Al Milgram, colors by Glennis Oliver, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. This really doesn't feel like an Onslaught tie-in. I completely agree. It's almost completely irrelevant to Onslaught. However, this is part two of a story where part one was very much an Onslaught tie-in, and events from this issue lead into the Fantastic Four issue that's pretty central, so I say we're going to cover it anyway. Might as well cover it here. Onslaught word we go. Onslaught word we go. This issue picks up shortly after we left off in the last issue. Forge, Mystique, and Sabretooth have left Dark Beast's lab and joined everybody else outside Brand Corporation headquarters. We open with Forge narrating. My name is Forge. Building is what I do. But sometimes one must first destroy before one can create. Case in point, any shred of trust Mystique and Sabretooth may have given me. Forge's captions continue over three full pages as he recaps the last issue and his general feelings about the team. He's got a lot to say. You know, Jay, I think this kind of works. Forge is a very thoughtful man, but most of that takes place inside his head. And most of those thoughts don't really lead to connection with the people around him. His interactions with his team is mostly just telling them what to do, and we don't even get that dialogue. We just get his continual analysis of the situation. He's um, he's a task leader, basically, not a social leader. Uh, who would the social leader of X-Factor be? I don't know that they really have one right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess Polaris is the only one who's not a pseudo-villain, a hologram, or Kyle. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think she's she's much of a social leader of the team either. I think Val Cooper occasionally tries to be and fails mightily. Well, remember, the social leader isn't like organizing social events. It's just the person who interacts on a human level with the other people. Oh yeah, I know. Okay, well, fair enough. Honestly, I think Shard's probably coming the closest. Yeah, it's just she never really steps in to tell anybody what to do or be in charge of anything or think beyond commenting on the current situation. At least that's my take. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a team that is lopsided in a lot of ways, and leadership is one of those. Very much so. Well, what Forge does here is he uses some kind of techno doodad to reactivate the government control implants inside Sabretooth and Mystique, uh, rewarding them for saving him by by doing that. But, you know, it's necessary. And they've also already both made it clear, like, they're going to stick around regardless, so I guess it works out. So might as well have them not kill civilians in the meantime. Yeah. Well, as we recall from the previous issue, everything went to shit. All of the Sentinels Onslaught had been collecting did in fact launch to go infect pretty much every tie-in book. But the X-Factor team also found out about Dark Beast's deception, which means they can now actually go and rescue Proper Beast. Original Flavor Beast. So it's time to split up. Bad in D&D, good in comics. 
Forge and Sabretooth will be tracking Team 1, Wildchild and Mystique will be tracking Team 2, and Polaris, along with Shard for support, will guard her brainwashed boyfriend and the guiltily traitorous kid, Random, who has a crush on her. Polaris's life is, like, pretty bad. I mean, it's been worse, but it's not great. She's also the worst possible choice for that particular job, which we'll get into later. Well, Forge does mention that Polaris and Shard are the only two team members with enough raw power to take Random and Havoc out if they need to, so there's that, but we have already established Forge is perhaps not the best judge of human character. Yeah, that's certainly one way to put it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the guy, but... So, okay, let's start with Polaris and Shard and Random and Brainwashed Havoc. Polaris is pretty open about her feelings with Shard. Right now... Other than betrayed, I don't know how I feel about either of them. I probably have never been closer to any people in my life. What they did to me is overwhelming. So she asks Shard to be the one to take these guys down if they try anything. And, you know, I really like this. This is Lorna Dane. She's a very emotional person, but she knows that about herself. She's also very self-aware. I like her. Like, I know she's an inconsistently written character, but I think this quality, this balance between her emotions and her interacting with the world in a reasonable way, like, uh, that's pretty core to her pretty consistently. Yeah, I agree. So, Random explains, and remember, Random was originally a Lobo parody, bounty hunter kind of guy, who it later turned out was a teenager with floppy hair who was just sort of mutant cosplaying a Lobo guy. Uh... He tells Polaris why he had been spying on the team. Right, apparently Dark Beast took him in, helped him control his powers, and create the, the whole random mercenary identity. And uh, apparently was like a father to him. Okay, is that really hard for you to imagine, too? Yeah, I, I sort of question um, Random's concept of fatherhood. Yeah, I mean, maybe his life was even worse before Dark Beast, I don't know. But Random does point out, you know, Dark Beast only ever makes people do things they already kind of want to do, so, like, maybe Lorna should be very careful with Havoc. Maybe he kind of did want to be all evil and shitty. Also, Random confesses his love for Lorna, which does track with his previous behavior pretty much from his first or second appearance, but mm, it's not it's not ideal. I mean, to Lorna's credit, she's like, dude, no... For so many reasons, no. So many reasons. What she does do is spend some energy trying to get through to Havoc. And Random freaks out. He's like, no, 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 what did I just say? And he breaks free of his bonds and attacks. It doesn't go great. Havoc also breaks free and pretty much liquefies Random with his plasma blasts. And Random flows down a sewer grate. And he won't be back in this or any other comic for like a year and a half. I don't know, maybe Pennywise got him. Also, then it turns out that, yep... Havoc completely faked Polaris out by pretending that he was back, and um, he yeah, zaps everyone. Sure does. Well, let's see what Mystique and Wildchild are up to. All sorts of fun and, and tracking. And backstory. Retroactive backstory. Wildchild mentions that he and Mystique used to work together back in the day, thus establishing he has even more mysterious connections with basically everyone, just like we found out recently he had with Sabretooth. And to me, what that mainly highlights is that he kind of is a budget Wolverine. I mean, that's the role he's filling on this book, and now he's sharing that role with Sabretooth. It's kind of Wolverine's Robert Cop. 
<laughs> it kind of is, yes. Wildchild uses that previous relationship with Mystique to needle her? Flirt with her? Hard to say. Tell me, how is it that a beautiful blue-skinned babe like yourself has never settled down? Bet you'd make one fine mom, Misty. Okay, let's see. She raised her adopted daughter as a supervillain, had a baby with the devil, and then threw that baby off a cliff when her husband got mad, gave birth to a racist jerk with her serial killer partner Sabretooth, had evil kids with both Wolverine and Professor X in an alternate future. Mother of the year. For real. Um, anyway, then Mystique says the floor is dropping away, but the art makes it look just like she's about to accidentally walk into a random chasm. Uh, Jay, do you remember that early Silver Age X-Men issue where Jean Grey almost steps into a small hole and then has this, like, giant thought bubble about how she doesn't have time to step aside, but she does have time to levitate a branch across the hole using her powers? I do, and in fact, I think it was a board. Oh, maybe it was a board. Why was there a board there? For Jean to levitate across the hole, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, anyway, point being, Wild Child saves Mystique from falling and smells Beast below. But how will they get down? If only one of them could shapeshift into a form that could fly, wouldn't that be convenient? Well, anyway, let's see what Forge and Sabretooth are up to. Playing Pinochle. I, I don't actually know what Pinochle is. Me neither. The worms go in, the worms go out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. So I guess it's something you could play on a snout if you're a worm, if you're small. And you, I guess you don't need hands to do it, or eyes. I'm going to look it up. It's going to bug me just a sec. Sorry. Okay, um, it is, it is a card game for two to four players played with a 48-card deck. It is derived from the card game Bezique. Oh, which I also have never heard of until discovering it now on Dr. Internet. I'm, I'm reading Wikipedia as we record. Uh, players score points by trick-taking and also by forming combinations of cards into melds. It is thus considered part of a trick-and-meld category, which also inc includes the game Belote. Trick-and-meld. That makes sense. Worms love trick-and-meld. And also snouts. I feel like I don't actually know any more about Pinochle than I did. Wikipedia, you have failed us. Or maybe we're just really lazy and not reading deeply enough. The point is, Sabretooth is being a total jerk to Forge, trying to get under his skin, doing that, like, sort of deep-voiced Hannibal Lecter thing that he tends to do. And Forge is just silent, just like before, except for more and more captions as he analyzes Sabretooth's motivations, the reason Sabretooth was put on the team in the first place, what this might mean for the government making X-Factor do all these things. Like... I think this narrative device actually really works. I mean, he's in his own head a lot. The whole the responsibility for everything about this team falls on him, and we know he takes that really seriously. Also, and I find this really interesting, since this whole onslaught thing, he's thinking that maybe mutants do need to police their own. Is it me, or between that and Shard being on the team? It's leading into the XSE. Yeah, it's got to be leading into the XSE, and I don't remember enough of this run to know whether that actually goes anywhere. I suspect it doesn't, but like the stuff with the Hound earlier in the book, I do appreciate that Howard Mackey is doing his best to build backstory for our various futures. Whether it is fun to read or not is debatable, but I, I appreciate that he's doing it. Sabretooth, for his part, smells Beast, remembers that there's actually a plot to progress, and busts through a wall to discover Beast in turbine manacles being electrocuted more and more with every step our heroes take. What is this, a first edition D&D &D dungeon? Yes, surprisingly. 
And just as Fatale attacks to complicate things further, okay, yeah, here comes Wildchild being carried by Mystique and, you guessed it, her feathery wings. See, she used Archangel's old wings because her inhibitor was programmed in like 1995 or 6 when Archangel had metal wings and she's not allowed to transform into X characters, but they don't, didn't have past X characters in there, I guess. What, is she a Sony property? Ha! <laughs> nice. Seriously, though, why doesn't she just transform into things that aren't X-Men? Like, there are so many kinds of wings you could have, Mystique. And we've definitely seen her transform parts of her body just kind of, like, generically, like her fingers into claws or whatever. Although, I don't know, maybe she can only morph into various people. Like, we've never seen her morph into, I don't know, a floor lamp or something when she's trying to hide. That would be so funny. Oh man, just a floor lamp with, like, little skulls all over it? With the little skull belt. It would be great. Like a red lampshade. <laughs> I love this plan. Uh, anyway, they rescue Beast, uh, except it's that whole thing where then Sabretooth and also Wildchild are like, this guy doesn't smell right, and they attack him, and everyone's freaking out, but of course it's just Dark Beast. I love how they know what all of the X-Men smell like. Oh man, do you think they have like, uh, like those little paint swatches, except it's X-Men smells? Like little scratch and sniff things from a magazine for perfume? Yes. Good. It's probably in X-Factor's files. They have a lot of files. God, those files have some weird shit. Oh man, yeah, the, the little smell swatches are, are not nearly the weirdest. So, the team X-Factor's down another nearby wall, and there's the real, real beast. I gotta say, he looks surprisingly healthy and clean for having been imprisoned for probably months. Maybe Dark Beast has been coming back and, like, grooming and feeding him? Oh, that could be. Like, he has that one of those collar things that sort of attaches Beast to the table that he's on so that he doesn't try to run away. Yeah, he had a poodle cut for a while there. Wasn't good. Okay, I'm picturing that and it's amazing. Anyway, everybody heads out, both X-Factor and their new prisoners. Fatale is pressured into teleporting Polaris, who, remember, got zapped to a hospital. And Dark Beast is a captive, just where he wants to be, just like Mystique. And Sabretooth, we have yet another villain under the care of X-Factor. Is he going to end up on the team? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't remember. Like, I've just skimmed this era. It didn't really uh, stick. I do know that Havoc gets away, and he's going to come back, and it's going to get more complicated with him later, before he eventually kind of sort of dies and then ends up in Mutant X and meets a vampire version of Storm named Bloodstorm. He turns out to have been pretending to be evil because he was way, way undercover, right? I think so. I mean, he's been hanging out with Dark Beast. I guess he just learned that from him, and presumably it goes about as well. But like in reverse? Yeah, yeah. It's deception all around. So anyway, that's X-Factor. This current run of X-Factor, well, it continues. We talked about... I'm trying to think of an adjective, and I just keep on coming up with extant. We, can't, we talked about an extant comic. Now let's talk about a really good comic. Yes, let's talk about Fantastic Four number 416, Unfinished Business. Written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Bob Wyacek, Harry Candelario, P. Craig Russell, and Al Milgram, colored by Ariane Lenshoek, Charlie Huston, and Ed Lazzolari, and lettered by Richard Sarkins and Comicraft, and the mysterious K.F., whoever that is. Unfinished Business is a hell of a name for a final issue of a series. I think it's pretty great, and it's thematically appropriate, and it has a great 
Pacheco wraparound cover of the Fantastic Four standing heroically with all of their enemies arrayed behind them, and the cover is partially sort of ripped away to reveal Onslaught's face beneath. Carlos Pacheco is so good here. He has really, really grown on me as an artist. I mean, I think he's really, really grown skill-wise across the era that we've been reading. Oh, that too. But, you know, if you're going to have a final Fantastic Four issue before Heroes Reborn, like, you could do a lot worse than having Carlos Pacheco draw it. So, we've looked at at least one other final issue that got pulled into an X crossover, and that was, that was the end of Avengers. Also Iron Man, which was not memorable. Yeah, also Iron Yeah, it's so unmemorable that I had completely forgotten that that was the last issue of Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, as, as we mentioned, this is the final issue of Fantastic Four, number 416. Um, it's a double-sized issue, and it's, it's a lot of fun. It is. It works really well as a crossover tie-in. This is our phase two issue, so it is a little more central. It works well as a wrap-up for the series. In some ways, it works well as like a love letter to everything that led up to this moment in Marvel continuity. Like, without overselling it, it's solid. And part of why it's so solid? It opens with Doctor Doom. It opens with Doctor Doom drinking a glass of presumably wine while looking at satellite photos of heroes fighting sentinels in New York. And he's mostly entertained until he finds out that Onslaught has kidnapped Franklin Richards. And then he gets territorial, because that fool Richards is his arch nemesis, damn it. That's right. And in New York, in Four Freedoms Plaza... Sue Richards, the Invisible Woman, is watching over the various injured from the crossover. Actual Beast is helping, too, so uh, I'm glad we talked about that X-Factor issue, because now we know how he got out. I do hope he had a chance to take a shower in between, um, unless you were correct that Dark Beast had just been grooming him, and maybe now he smells like something floral. It's little bows on his ears. That would be great. Uh, but yeah, once again, this is Beast being more scientist than superhero. That's sort of his thing in this era. And the cast talk among themselves. Paul Rudd is worried about his daughter Cassie. Nathaniel Richards has seen the future, that's where he's from, recently, and knows that the Fantastic Four will be killed if they fight. I feel like we should remind listeners here that when Miles says Paul Rudd, he actually means Scott Lang, the second Ant-Man. Yeah, you know, Paul Rudd. Very charismatic. Doesn't really age. Uh, Reed and Sue are talking about balancing parenting versus being superheroes. But honestly, I think it's fine. Like, I mean, Nathan Christopher Charles Summers was in danger, like, all the time, and he turned out, uh, oh. Yeah. But this works. Like, it's very much a Fantastic Four issue, despite being in the middle of a crossover. These characters are all, you know, being themselves in a way that doesn't feel shoehorned in, but for a reader who's not familiar with the FF, once again, is also great at giving you a really quick idea of, oh, that's who this character is. That's what their personality is. That's what their deal is. And this is going to be a tour de force reunion. Not only do we have all of the characters who've landed here after fighting Onslaught, but there are almost immediately a slew of newcomers. That's because inside Onslaught's astral backpack, Franklin Richards is using the method that Onslaught made him use to ensnare Nate Gray to try to contact his family, to let them know where he is so they can come help. And I'm sorry to say that Onslaught is, once again, as much as I love this issue, is once again drawn in his old form from Phase 1 again. And Onslaught decides, well, he is going to let Franklin's signal get through, but he's going to alter what it's sending. 
And back at Four Freedoms Plaza, Paul Rudd's daughter Cassie is being watched over by Christoph Vernard. Okay, what what the hell's going on with this guy? He looks like Doctor Doom. Yeah, he, that's because he's a clone of Doctor Doom. A clone? Well, I mean, the text talks about how he's just got a copy of Doctor Doom's like brain, but he also has a he also has a copy copy of Doctor Doom's memories in mind. Huh. Okay, so that thing I said about this being mostly accessible to non Fantastic Four readers. Yeah, Kristoff, um, you're you're an exception. Uh, anyway, the point is, oh, you know, you know what, the, you know what the best thing about Kristoff is? What? If I recall, if I recall correctly, he is the love interest in the She-Hulk Diaries. Oh, that's delightful. That was that novel, right? Yeah. Oh yay! Well done, Kristoff. You could do much, much worse than Jennifer Walters. Uh, anyway, the point is, Kang the Conqueror, who you may recall from such television shows as Loki, uh, randomly shows up and attacks, and then vanishes as soon as Kristoff punches him. And then Psycho Man, the master of emotion, shows up and attacks the thing and Alicia Masters, his ex. Okay, I don't know much about the Psycho Man, the master of emotions, but I love him. Like, his design is so goddamn Jack Kirby with all the dots and fiddly techno bits and that his Jack weapon, Kirby. His weapon is so great. Yeah, yes, this big metal box and it just has big buttons that are labeled fear, doubt, and hate. It's it's freaking like a, a weaponized version of that kid's toy that's got the different buttons for the different farm animal sounds. I was going to say it's like a weaponized version of an anxiety disorder. <laughs> it can be both. Poor Kano does. The cow goes hate. Anyway, Super Scroll and Power Scroll show up and they attack the torch and Lyja the laser fist. Um, so in addition to having simplistic names and lots of powers, uh, they also don't like interspecies relationships since he's a human and she's a scroll. So basically, fuck them, as the human torch says. Bigots like you should open their minds instead of their mouths. And then he sets them on fire. And also, the Unhumans show up to help. Like, all of them. Yeah, and then Blastar attacks, and the Wizard and the Mad Thinker attack Reed and Sue. And there are all these villains, and occasional heroes, with all of their gimmicks and all of their villain ranting. It is so good! Excuse me, when you say the Wizard, don't you mean the Wizard without wings? Uh, that's how he describes himself. I thought his name was just the Wizard. I think that's what he was called on the trading card I had. I don't know much about these characters. I love the implication that most wizards have wings, and this sets him apart. Oh, that's a really good point, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, Reed very quickly figures out what's going on. Obviously, this is Onslaught using Franklin's reality manipulation powers to make this implausible cavalcade of villainy occur. But that villainy won't get past the latest hero to sh show up, and that is the very, very topless Namor with his now very fancy long topknot. So, I guess in continuity at this point, he recently tried to hook up with Sue again, but nonetheless, Reed respects him and trusts him and Sue enough to work together while Reed himself does science. Namor's impressed. Truly, you are worthy of the name Mr. Fantastic. So be it. Imperious Rex! More heroes show up, it's Black Panther, it's She-Hulk, it's Agatha Harkness, it's the Fantastic Force, who I'm pretty sure are just composed of sheer 90s -ium. I don't know. There are more villains like Devos the Devastator, and Tyros the Terrible, and Annihilus, and Dragon Man, and Malice, but not that one. But all of this is leading up to the villain I've been most excited to talk about, that listeners you heard about not very long ago at all. That is the Red Ghost. Yep, yep, the Red Ghost, he's this this dude with a bunch of apes and he, he turns his pet baboon into a high-intensity plasma gun and just narrates like that's a very normal thing to have happen in his life. First of all, that baboon is not his pet, it is his professional partner. 
Oh, okay, fair, fair. Second, he doesn't turn it into a plasma gun. It turns itself into a plasma gun. I mean, I'm getting the impression that despite being a supervillain, the Red Ghost and his apes have actually a, a pretty healthy working relationship. They do not. Oh. Well, I love him anyway. Mainly, I love that baboon that turned into a high-intensity plasma gun of its own volition. No, he's he's arguably kind of an abusive ape master. The apes actually turn on him at one point because um, it turns out that he's been um, controlling them by withholding food, like in his first appearance. Oh, well, that's not cool. All right, apes, you don't need that guy. Break free, turn into whatever the hell you want, and, I don't know, live a happy life. Eating hostess fruit pies, which is just how they can be distracted mid-fight, also. I mean, let's be real, Hostess Fruit Pie is actually pretty good. I mean, terrible for you, but damn satisfying. Uh, thank you, 60s Marvel. You know, stop clock. Anyway, the most important arrival, okay, the second most important arrival after the Red Ghost is Doctor Doom. And he is not an illusion. He is there in person. And he is deeply offended at the Human Torch's implication that he's working for Onslaught. Don't be impertinent. I am not for hire. If I wanted you dead, your corpse would already be smeared across the pavement. I demand an urgent audience with Reed Richards. I assume even you can guess the topic. And, no matter how lax the current state of your building's security, a personal escort will always be required for... Dr. Doom! Now, Reed finally finishes his neuromantic disruptor, but he needs a power source, and the thing volunteers to sacrifice the machine they found in the jungles of Brazil that's been letting him turn back to his human form when he wants. God, this comic's weird. It's the Fantastic Four, and it is delightful. But we know this is a big deal. I mean, one of the core things I know about the thing, and I haven't read a lot of Fantastic Four, is that he feels really shitty about being stuck in his orange, rocky form, and he wants nothing more than to be able to be a human again. And now he's giving that up, but, I mean, he's not even hesitating, because... In case you forgot, Franklin's still my godchild, and there ain't nothing I wouldn't be willing to give up for him. And the Neuromantic Disruptor disrupts Neuromancer, I guess, Uh, because another seven random villains from different panels fade away, as do the rest. But Agatha Harkness, who you also may remember from that other show, confirms the fact that this attack is occurring means Franklin Richards is still alive. And so it is final battle time. And Sue Richards does the all four hands together thing from 1961's Fantastic Four number one, followed by a very 1996 double page spread of everyone looking heroic as hell. This is the perfect bookend. Reed Richards, of course, gets the last word. Gather up, everyone. I don't need to explain what's at stake here. We are fighting for far more than the life of my son, though that would be enough. If we fail, humanity dies. Get ready to rumble, people. In the words of my dearest friend, it's clobberin' time. Hell yeah, it is, Reed. This issue is just nonstop nonsense with so much heart. And I feel like nonstop nonsense with so much heart is exactly what you want from the Fantastic Four. This issue is just, it, it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. Man, the it's clobberin' time as, as a dramatic moment always takes me straight to that Secret Wars moment of Kang the Conqueror just ye- conquer yelling over and over again, what time is it, Benjamin Grimm? 
I forgot about that. Oh God, it's so good. It sounds silly, but it's it's it, it is like heroic music swelling in the moment. It's perfect. Oh man, Jay, comics are so great. I love them. They have their moments, and they have baboons who turn into laser rifles. <laughs> they surely do. That takes us to the final issue we'll be talking about today. X-Men Unlimited number 12, The Once and Future Juggernaut. Written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Steve Epting and Ariel Olivetti, inked by Kevin Conrad and Ariel Olivetti, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Hey, John Francis Moore and Steve Epting, uh, they did Factor X and a little bit of the post-Age of Apocalypse X-Factor. Yeah, they're a good team, and no less so here. This this is another issue that, that feels significantly disconnected from Onslaught, although it is directly precipitated by him, because way back in X-Men number 54, Juggernaut came to the X-Mansion trying to figure out who Onslaught was, and so became Onslaught's first victim as Professor X ripped the gem of Sidorak out of his chest and imprisoned him in it. And now, Dr. Stephen Strange has come to investigate a disturbance in the mystic ether. And that disturbance is the Gem of Sidorak, which is sitting on Xavier's desk like a paperweight with Juggernaut imprisoned inside. And like all good Marvel gems, the Gem of Sidorak has a whole dimension inside it, which, yeah, it's kind of a hell dimension, though, so yeah, not as cool as it could be. Luckily for Strange, he's got help on its way. That's right. Gomer the Ancient jumps out of the computer and dives into the gem to rescue Kane, cautioning Strange to stay behind. So Gomer the Ancient um, is, is a small, elderly, immortal, possibly deity of some sort who first showed up in Uncanny X-Men number 329 to help um, Archangel Wolverine and Psylocke collectively rescue Psylocke um, using uh, the, the Crimson whatchamacallit. The Crimson Dawn. The Crimson Dawn, yes. As multiple listeners pointed out after we released that episode, Joe Matarera probably based uh, this guy off of Dakoan, the old man from the anime movie Ninja Scroll, which is actually the first anime I ever saw. It uh, kind of freaked me out when I was a kid. Um, when Gomer shows up, though, I do want to mention that the first thing he does is to smash a neon spider that his rival Tar sent. Uh, in the original story, there was this uh, Chinese restaurant, and the neon characters on the sign jumped off and skittered around like spiders. Apparently they were just disguised as spiders. I don't know. That's less cool. Yeah. I liked it when it was just the letters. Um, I mean, they're, they're still cool looking, but, but man. Ah, well, well, anyway. So Kane for his part is not having a great time in the gem. In addition to the general inhospitability of Sidorak's dimension, Kane is being tortured by someone named Spite, who is the demon Despair, is which uh, you may recall is spelled D-apostrophe-S-P-A-Y-R-E, uh, unpleasant little sister. Wait a minute, but Spite is just spelled Spite, like S-P-I-T-E. Right, it should at least be S-P-Y-T-E with an, with an unusual apostrophe. Spite! Yeah. So, Spite's deal is that she feeds on tortured souls. Uh, who is she, Silent Hill in tight pants? Ugh. Well, she'll actually show up again in a Juggernaut one-shot. Um, she's really not very interesting. She's just sort of like a sexy, evil lady who's mean. Who makes people feel bad. She's, she's despair in a push-up bra. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kane is being forced to relive various parts of his past, and Gomer is taking him through these parts, trying to help him learn from them, to get past them. And it's interesting, because we know Juggernaut's past, but the versions here are a little different. Right. 
Charles's memory of Kurt Marco, that's Kane's father, was as indifferent at best and pretty hostile at worst to both of them. And Kane, on the other hand, remembers Kurt as having been incredibly loving to Charles and while while super hostile to Kane. Yeah, and we have differences like in the original scene in Juggernaut's first appearance back in the Silver Age, we have a scene of Kane asking his dad for money and then talking about Xavier's dad's death about Kurt maybe being responsible. And here Kane is just straight up trying to blackmail Kurt. And the lab burns down in the process of this. Um, I think Kane knocks over some flammable materials. And Kurt starts to just rescue Charles and then goes back for Kane and it kills him. Right. So this is definitely a big rewrite of Kurt Marco. And I appreciate, I don't know if it's intentional, but I appreciate that we're getting two very conflicting stories. We got Charles's version of what happened in early Silver Age X-Men. We have Kane's version here. And in Kane's version... Kane himself was much more ignored and bullied and forsaken by his dad. Is that his perspective? Is that what actually happened? We don't really know. Yeah, neither of these guys has really set themselves up as a reliable narrator. Totally. So, as they go, I mean, Juggernaut is, he seems open to changing, he seems open to learning what he can from these experiences and becoming a better person, and maybe that'll help him somehow escape from what Gomer has said. And I like this. Gomer basically presents it that 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 Kane can can get out, but he has to work his way through his issues. Right, uh, very much like Silent Hill in that regard, actually. But I kind of dig this. Like, I like the Juggernaut as a character, and one of the things I like about him is the sort of will he, won't he morality thing. Like, is he going to just take the easy way out and punch everything and get whatever he wants and rob banks, or is he going to actually learn something? Maybe learn from Professor X or the X Men or Black Tom or whatever. Yeah, that's an eternal theme we see with Juggernaut, and it's always interesting, and it's made him a pretty compelling and sympathetic character over time. He's definitely not at his best here, though, because when Spike comes up and is like, yeah, you could do that, or you could take the easy way and get a lot of power if you come with me, he's like, hell yeah, power sounds great. I love that. I love that Kane has been presented with the options to take the hard road and become a better person, or just to keep getting whatever he wants all the time. She's got... Another argument on her side, though, because she has an anecdote about the history of the gem and specifically Gomer's connection to it. Centuries ago, a group of heretic monks sought to harness the power of the multidimensional deity Sidorak. Unfortunately, they failed, releasing only Sidorak's most destructive aspect upon the earth. Power incarnate, this entity destroyed the monks and then every village in its path. Not until two novice magicians joined forces was this manifestation of Sidorak stopped. One was Gomer the Impetuous, apprenticed to one of the most disreputable conjurers on the continent, and the other was his grim-faced rival Tar, initiate of the Ebon Vein. No relation to the Ebon Citadel. Through more luck than skill, they contained the elemental Sidorak in a mystical ruby. Their victory was incomplete, for Sidorak cursed his ruby prison, swearing that any who touched the gem would become a juggernaut of destruction, a vessel for his unearthly power. Neither Gomer nor Tar trusted the other to guard the ruby, each believing his partner would succumb to the lure of such phenomenal power. 
After much argument, they agreed to bury the gem in a temple recessed in a cave and seal the entrance under a mountain of rocks. And Spite insists that Gomer wants the power for himself, so Cain follows her, and he follows her straight to Sidorak, who's, whom she's scheming to release. And Sidorak consumes Spite and plans to use Cain to get himself out of the gem. Yeah, seriously, Sidorak just opens his mouth and grabs Spite by her ankle and just swallows her. Just chomp. One bite. One Spite bite. So, is this the first on-panel appearance of Sidorak, at least in his modern form? Uh, kind of, yeah. So the Sidorak we see here looks like a more demonic version of the Juggernaut's armor. That characteristic dome head is the most prominent uh, aspect of that. The thing is, Sidorak was actually, in a couple of issues before this, sort of. He was in Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme, number 44 and 49, but in those issues, he just looked like this mauve, beardy, armored guy with pointy ears. I do appreciate, though, that in one of those issues, uh, Sidorak makes it clear that that is not, in fact, his real form. It's almost as if he thought I truly was this overly humanoid form I wear from time to time. Okay, Jay, that is absolutely Sidorak's voice in canon forever, and I love it. So Kane, aided by Gomer and Tar, who's also stuck in the gem, defeats Sidorak, and the dimension collapses in on itself, expelling Kane. Uh, who is once more the Juggernaut. How? Who knows? He just is. I mean, he basically destroys the presumably actual form of Sidorak and absorbs his power thanks to Gomer and Tar's anti-Sidorak magic. It makes it clear, though, that Kane will forever be the Juggernaut. He is bonded to what's left of Sidorak's energy forever, which I guess will be the case, like, except for that one time and that other time. And you remember that time that Colossus was the Juggernaut and his outfit actually looked pretty cool that way? Yeah, that was definitely a thing. Yeah. It's an interesting narrative choice. Like, I, I say that, I'm not being sarcastic. Like, it was it was a legitimately interesting story beat. I'm really curious to see what happens with what Colossus is up to in current continuity. I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. <laughs> As you should be. So, yeah, X-Men Unlimited, once again, we have a story that's kind of unrelated to the main plot, but is still very much set within continuity, focusing on a character we don't typically get much focus on. What do you think, both as an issue of X-Men Unlimited and as an Onslaught tie-in? I feel pretty good about it as both. I think it's an issue of X-Men Unlimited. It's it's what the book is. It's a, a done-in-one story focusing on a character who's not normally the focus of an X-Book, um, and in a direction that's not necessarily normally the focus of an X-Book. And... As a tie-in, it does a good job of, of, of basically tying up an unfinished thread from the crossover. Yeah, yeah, kind of the same. And like I said, I'm, I'm biased in favor of Juggernaut stories. I tend to like John Francis Moore and Steve Epting. So, like, it's not one of the greatest issues ever created, but it's, uh, it's enjoyable. I enjoyed it. That's a solid read. You know who we also tend to like? Our listeners. And they've got questions. Brandon asks via email... Which came first, Wolverine's hair-shaped hat or his hat-shaped hair? Did he only develop that weird hairstyle after he got a mask shaped the same way? Or did someone in the Marvel Universe look at his haircut and actually think, that'd be a great shape for, head, for a headpiece? <laughs> okay, so um, in comics, of course, it was the hat. 
We actually didn't get to see Logan's hair until X-Men number 98, and uh, having just looked at that, I'd forgotten that Wolverine's Widow's Peak in that first appearance drawn by Dave Cockrum actually goes all the way down to his eyebrows. It's, uh, it's pretty striking. In continuity, of course, the hair came first. I mean, we've seen a lot of pre-Weapon X flashbacks where Logan has that ridiculous haircut. So as I was looking into this, I stumbled upon a really cool article by Alex Grand at comicbookhistorians.com, which was tracing the artistic evolution of that hairstyle, where it came from. And Alex traced it from 1935's Werewolf of London movie to Jerry Roll from Leave it to Beaver to Eddie Munster to Wallywood's Anna Man to Shaddock the Cowboy to DC's Timberwolf to Wolverine. So uh, that hair has quite the... Heritage. Wow. Wow, you did that. Sure did. But uh, seriously, Wolverine must have a healing factor for his hair to flip out like that, even after wearing his hat thing for, like, days at a time, or years at a time. It wasn't until X-Men number 98 that he took his hat off. Although, I guess I do have this one, like, beard cowlick on the corner of my jaw that is just as stubborn, so I don't know, maybe I'm a mutant. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I recently played the first Marvel vs. Capcom game, and was shocked to learn it's an adaptation of the Onslaught crossover. You fight Onslaught in both forms, Magneto and Crab-flavored, as the final boss, and he even says the BEHOLD MY MIGHTY HAND line. With Marvel seemingly making a greater push for video games recently, what other X-Men storylines do you think would make good games, and what genres would they be? I want an old-school Excalibur point-and-click um, adventure game. Oh, man, that would be so much fun, like old LucasArts style. Uh, okay, would it cover a specific Excalibur story or just like in general? Probably the Claremont and Davis years, or at least it would be in that tone. I think having some universe hopping involved would be ideal. So maybe the cross time caper. That would be great. Also, I just miss that genre in general. I mean, we've, you know, we've gotten a few recent examples of that. Like uh, Tim Schafer Studio did Broken Age a while back, and I just replayed the remaster of Grim Fandango. But yes, let's have more. Well, there, there are a whole bunch of them that are coming out for like iOS and other, other handheld mobile. Oh, that's awesome. I always forget phone games exist, aside from Pokemon Go, which isn't really a game so much as a distraction. Uh, yeah, I feel like those are the platforms that that genre is becoming more concentrated on these days. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally into that. That totally makes sense. Uh, I would love to see a New Mutants Academy X game where you have to balance school and social dynamics and going out on missions, like something kind of like Persona, but less demony. Maybe less demony? I don't know. I mean, I guess after House of M, that book did deal with a lot of limbo stuff, so uh, maybe demony. What about a tower defense game, only kind of in reverse in your arcade? Oh, that would be that would be great. Like, uh, your, your prisoners are trying to escape, and you have to have all of these wacky, wacky traps to kill them in? Uh-huh. I, I love this plan. Like, what I love about Arcade is he's a horrible, horrible person. He kills, presumably, so many victims who aren't superheroes, who are just, like, random people that he's hired to kill. But he's just so goofy about it. Uh, except in, um, whatchamacallit. Not Avengers Academy, Avengers Arena, where he was legitimately terrifying. That was an unsettling arc. Okay, so not that. Make it goofy. Make it silly. Make it fun. Make it old school Excalibur. Hey, there we go. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the microphone goes to the somewhat unlikely Sexy Forge, presumably in his tiny shorts from his first appearance. 
No, no, this one's all 1996. Aw. My name is Forge. Seduction is what I do. But speaking out loud isn't. Far better to narrate to myself, to think through my romantic tactics, my sexual techniques, the four-dimensional geometry of my techno-polycule. Figbar Lonesome is a mystery, a being of pure passion, clearly. But what is Figbar into? I could ask, but no. Better to use my intellect and strategic minds to narrow it down. And all I've observed of Figbar, all of the government's files, including those little smell swatches, tell me what I need to know. I'll just hold out this clown suit and bottle of motor oil while raising an eyebrow and smiling and... Okay, your eyes are wide and you're backing slowly away. Maybe next time, Figbar. But Juan Cordero, you, I understand. There's definitely no need for verbal communication of any sort here. I can read you like one of my inventions. Every sensual piston, every emotional circuit, I understand the machinery of you. And I am confident that what turns you on is... Hey, come on, come on. I know their buzzing is loud, but they won't sting you as long as we take it slow. My internal calculations clearly concluded that you'd had B-sex at least a dozen times. Well... The concept of probability always told me there'd be days like this. At least I've got you to keep me company internal monologue. Now what are you into? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is into being recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can also find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn, if that's the kind of thing you're into. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, and speaking only to ourselves in narrative captions, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week... Do we even really have to say it at this point? Yes, we do. Onslaught continues. continues.